My counselor, my psychiatrist, is not a believer, and she would always ask me when we just kind of talk about these things, and she was like, why do you still believe? What you're telling me, what you're experiencing, why do you still believe? And I just look at her every time and I say, because I'm alive. Welcome back to the Prepare Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Hanton, and today we welcome Katie Laidlaw to our podcast. Katie is a young woman, but she's already lived a lot of life, and you're going to love her personal testimony of struggle and questioning, but in the end, how her faith has increased because of the things that she's experienced. So here we go. Here's my conversation with Katie. Welcome to the podcast, Katie. Thank you so much, Heather. I'm so glad to be here today and uh, talk with you. Yeah, we are thrilled that you are taking the time for us today. And we want to know all about who is Katie Laidlaw. So just tell us a little bit about what's happening in your life right now, what job you have, where your current, you know, situation is, core, all of those things. We just want to know about Katie. I can do that. (laughs) Well, um, I'm originally from the East. So I moved here about almost five years ago now. So I used to be the youth pastor at the Norwich Corps. And while I was at Norwich, I pursued my master's at Wheaton. Um, So that was kind of the reason why I moved out this way. But then I fell in love with the Midwest and decided to stay. So recently, uh, during the summer, so about in July, I moved to a position here in the youth department at THQ. So I'm now the Christian Education Director for Discipleship, which wins the longest title award, (laughs) I believe, anyway. (laughs) Um, But I just, I fell in love with youth ministry. I've been working in youth ministry since I was a youth myself, teaching music Mm. at CORE in the East and being hired on as like a youth program specialist. So um, it's been a long time that I've been involved with that. So starting out at Norwich just really invigorated that passion in my heart and studying ministry and, um, you know, biblical studies at Wheaton really instilled that as well. So I'm, I'm still at Norwich. I soldier there. I just believe that that's the place that God has for me right now. And I'm very involved and I'm leading core cadets and I'm the singing company leader and basically I do whatever they ask me to do. So that's a good thing. I have a dog that I rescued. Her name is Blossom. She's about six years old now. Um, I actually rescued her in Ohio on a random street and she was in a box with a litter mate. So I'm a sucker and... (laughs) I looked at this poor puppy in the box and I said, oh my gosh, she needs a home. So I took her and uh, a friend's mom took the other dog. Oh, that's such a great story. And the rest is history. That's right. (laughs) She's my dog. Awesome. So what kinds of things keep you busy in your spare time? What do you like to do? What are your hobbies, your interests, those kinds of things? What games do you play on your phone? So fun fact, I do not have any games on my phone. What? None, none. Just because I would probably never stop playing. (laughs) I kind of, I just can't get myself into that place. So I try to spend my time either listening to music or reading or listening to podcasts. Um, But other than that, I try to minimize my use of technology because it's easy for me to hyper-focus into that. 
Um, so I try to focus on if I'm reading a book, I do try to read the old fashioned way and yeah. um, do it that way. Just try to minimize. I mean, technology rules all of our lives. So and I also I'm a huge um, power lifter. So I took up power lifting about a year and a half ago. So I spend probably two hours in the gym every day. Oh, my goodness. Lifting and you know, getting strong. So I love that. So that's like my main, my main hobby. And I dabble in trombone and do that kind of thing. So (laughs) she says dabble. Okay. So how, this is how I know Katie. So I met Katie a year ago, pretty much a year ago at my nephew's graduation. I never, I never knew her, never knew where she was from or anything that she was going to Norwich. And I had lived in the Chicago area for over two years. That's what's crazy. Um, but then we got connected through Territorial Songsters. And then when you came on to THQ, obviously I, now I work in the same building as you, which is awesome. Um, but she says dabble in trombone. She plays in the Chicago staff band, y'all. Like she is legit. (laughs) (laughs) Who you ask maybe. But like, you know, just ask your husband, Tom, you know, he'll, he'll tell you. <laughs> but like, you know, he's the only one that would laugh at my joke. <laughs> well, you were probably the only one that laughed at his. So then the two peas in a pod. that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know you have a very interesting story that we want to hear about. So you were raised within the Salvation Army. Just tell us a little bit about your background, uh, how, what, how you came up, like what your childhood was like, and as much as you want to share about that. Um, so I was raised as an officer's kid. Um, my parents were second career officers, so and they had got married and had kids a little bit later in life. So I think I've been an officer's kid since I was about four years old. So that's pretty much all I remember and all I know. So being part of ministry and seeing the ins and outs of core life and church life and administration and all of the things that core officers do, which is so much, mm. I've been able to kind of be a part of that and see all of that. So um, never a dull moment for me in my childhood mm. between, you know, all of the things that that kind of life brings, but also just, you know, the dynamics of my family as well. Mm. So, you know, I have two brothers. I'm in the middle. I'm okay. the middle child, the only daughter. So that tells you a little bit about yep. me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to learn how to be tough and strong and speak my mind and stand up for myself. And that came in handy for all those years in that setting as well. But I just never felt like things fit. Mm. I always kind of felt like there was something more that I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was searching for. I always felt kind of this discomfort in every area that we would be. So every place that we would move to, every place that we'd settle in, every endeavor that I'd have, there was just such oddness for me. Um, which that's typical for officers, kids, you know, oh, yeah. when we move, there's the sadness and the anxiety of making friends and finding new places to Uh, participate in hobbies and activities. There's always that anxiety. But for me, it was a different anxiety, almost like a numbness Mm. that I just began to withdraw myself as self-protection. And also just because I never really felt when I would try to kind of, you know, 
exert myself or to um, put myself out there. There's just, it never seemed to mesh. Mm. So there was always this, this dissonance with me and whatever was going on um, in my family, in the core life and just the divisions that I found myself in. Um, You know, I grew up being part of music. I mean, in my house, if you didn't practice or you didn't play an instrument, you didn't get dinner, you didn't do anything. So, I mean, we were born and bred to be musicians in my household. Um, So that's kind of what we did. And that's what we were about. So, you know, we always were top dogs growing up in divisional music and Mm. that's what we are known for. And there was just always this thing in my heart was like, I, I don't think that's what I want to be. I don't think that's who I want to be known as. And I wanted to create an identity for myself that was different from what I had within my context and with my family. So that kind of led into this, this, struggle for who am I and Mm. what am I working towards? So that looked pretty different in my life moving forward from teenage years, from searching for my own ministries and going on mission trips as a teenager, which I still don't understand why my parents let me go to (laughs) African countries at Mm. 15, 16 years old, but changed my life, changed my life. So I became really independent at a young age. Um, just trying to move into my own um, and try to figure that out. So I graduated high school at 16. Wow. And I, I just, I wanted to move forward mm-hmm. and I was feeling stuck and I wanted to create this, this newness for myself. So yeah, graduated high school at 16. I started college immediately after I was independent. I was working full time. Um, it was just me, me against the world, trying wow. to find my place wow. and see what God had for me. Um, and just the journey that, that that took, I wanted to be a nurse for a while so I could go overseas and be a missionary nurse. I looked at studying opera in school because wow. that's what I was gifted in. Yeah. And then I ended up studying ministry and Christian counseling. (laughs) Wow. The extremes. (laughs) The opera singing, nurse giving. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know, when you're young, though, I really didn't figure out exactly what I wanted to do with my college career until like my third year of college. I'm like, okay, now I have a path. So you're just figuring it out, trying different things. I feel like there needs to be even more space for that, you know, once you start college, is that exploration. That is such a pressure for our society and for youth that already feel so lost. That was me. Yeah. A perfectionist girl who didn't feel like she fit in anywhere. And then there's this pressure to decide what your future looked like. And so instead of taking time and space to just be, I had to push the doing. Yeah and push this process. And I rushed it. I didn't let myself be a kid. I rushed into adulthood and I rushed into the pressures of life and responsibility just because of the pressure of just this doing um, Mm -hmm. mentality that our society has. Mm -hmm. And that created a lot of issues for me growing up and trying to heal from doing that. Cause you know, once you do that, you start your adult life at 16 There's so much that comes with that and so much baggage that comes with not being able to live out those kid years and receive the input um, and be part of those experiences that shape you going into those adult years. And so I missed out on a lot of that, a lot of that. 
And I had to really unpack a lot of that during my college years, just because there were things that my peers understood that I thought I did in my own pride. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) I had to stand back and say, oh, Mm -hmm. I missed that part. (laughs) And it's time for me to step back and relearn. Um, And that kind of just propelled into even just my working life after receiving my degree and even pursuing my master's. Like there's just so much that you realize as you're going through the learning and you're watching other people um, and hearing their stories, you realize, okay, I really have to embrace these ugly parts of my story that I really don't want to address or even think about, let alone speak out loud. Right. It's all part of the healing process. I was just talking about this yesterday, even just sharing something out loud. You know, Satan likes us to keep secrets. Um, He would prefer us to keep everything internal. But the the moment that we share with, with even one other person, you begin to heal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So beginning your life at 16 and then, you know, like just going for it, you have your master's degree. You have moved now to Chicago, the Chicago area, and you find yourself where? So all alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have no family out here. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made some wonderful friends and I've met wonderful people moving out here um, within my church family and my work family and extended families from CTSS and staff mm-hmm. band and the things that I'm involved in, but it's just me. Yeah. Like it's just me. And so that was a struggle for me getting adjusted to that lifestyle. Because even though I became so independent at a young age, I still had the security net of knowing that I had people nearby. That if I were to have something crazy happen to me, I could just call and I'll be there, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I had that security net, but being here, I didn't have that. And so I had to relearn and learn this new type of lifestyle um, of self-reliance just to make sure like, and I'm a person of security. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was a definitely adjustment for me. But last year I go home to my apartment as I, you know, we all do after a long day at work. And I just went home, you know, exhausted, um, ready for some rest. Um, and I went to take my lovely dog outside and, mm-hmm. We went out and um, there had been a neighbor that had been kind of bothering me over the past few months that I just kind of, you know, kind of brushed it off and just moved on with life and kept going. My dog is not the friendliest, so she she kind of keeps people a certain distance away from me. Mm -hmm. But so I took took her outside. And when I came back um, into my apartment, this neighbor, this man um, was inside my apartment. Oh, my gosh. And before I could register what was like, what was happening, um, and I turned around to kind of go walk back out my door, the next second I knew I was on the floor. And being sexually assaulted and raped in your own home, and knowing that you're alone and that no matter how much you beg and scream and beg for help, there's no one coming to help. Yeah, yeah. And that was just kind of something that, in that moment, I was like, I, I am alone. Yeah, I am so alone. And there was no one there just begging for God to spare my life and be with me in those moments of, of just horrific 
mm. horrific, disgusting trauma, just begging for God to spare my life because I didn't think I was going to make, yeah. I didn't think I was going to make it out alive. And God bless my little rescue dog <laughs> <laughs> who saved my life that night. Yeah. If she would not have mustered up the courage to bite this, this man, I probably would not have made it out alive that night. Oh my gosh. And walking through the process of, you know, doing all of the reporting of, of that sexual assault and um, walking through the trial that I had to go through, I did all of that by myself. Yeah. All by myself because I didn't have anyone. And the only people that knew that I disclosed my assault to were not there for me. Mm. I was so hurt. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to say more hurt by the absence of the body of Christ for me in those moments than what actually happened to me. But it was a deep wound that happened because we know the body of Christ and what it looks like and what it's supposed to be. Right. But when it's not functioning the way that God intended, it hurts, it wounds, um, and it causes damage. Yeah. And we wonder why we're in the body in the first place. Right. So in that process of healing from this, this trauma I just was questioning, like, am I better off alone? Like my whole life, I asked myself, you know, mm. maybe you are better off alone. Like you just, just be independent, do your own thing. Keep your head down. No one can hurt you this mm. way. You know, you can just do your own thing this way. But in that moment when I had nothing left, everything had been stripped away from me. I was as exposed and broken mm. and damaged as one could be in that moment, um, that period of my life. I realized that that's not the way I wanted to live anymore. Mm. God had gifted me so many people to support me. And um, I had even been a little bit secretive about my story, about what had happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I only withdrew the more when I was not supported by a few individuals that I had disclosed to, but that's not God. Right. That's right. not God. And I had to remind myself that. And my, my counselor, um, my psychiatrist is not a believer. And she would always ask me when we just kind of talk about these things that she was like, why do you still believe mm. like what you're telling me, what you're experiencing? Why do you still believe? And I just look at her every time. And I say, because I'm alive. Mm. And God was there in that moment. Yes. And something as small as my dog that he gave me, gifted me six years ago, and that story of rescue with my dog, God's doing that for me. Right. God's taken me up out of that box of despair and isolation and loneliness and brokenness. And he's taken me home. Amen. And he's bringing me back and healing me um, and renewing those parts of my heart that I didn't think were possible to yeah. be healed. I didn't think there was any hope for me. And now in that, as a result of experiencing that isolation and loneliness and just dealing with that hurt on my own, I see the need for people to be present yes. in, in hurt and hardship and trauma. And the worst thing you can do, I have learned for someone who is going through a hard time is to ask them what they need. Oh, Don't really? ask. Really? Don't ask. Just be there. Do something. Don't ask because I can't even think about getting out of bed or um, what I'm going to eat that day in dealing with my, my trauma when it was fresh 
I can't even tell you what day it is. Yeah. So you asking me, what can I do? I have no clue. Yeah. We have no idea. Give me a hug. <laughs> Give yes. me a hug. Say, Katie, here's, here's your favorite candy. Katie, here, I'm going to come take your dog for a walk because that's triggering for you. Yes, <laughs> you right. know, being present. And I mean, and that's, I think, why we as humans who crave that relationship um, with our, our whole being crave the, the tender love and care. We just love and adore that time with God so much. Yeah because we're just able to be present mm-hmm. and just sit in his presence and be cared for and loved. And we don't have to think about anything in that moment. Right. He is just supplying us what we need. And we're able to be honest with him in that moment and just say like, I'm just going to sit here on your lap <laughs> and rest in your presence. Mm-hmm. And that's what the church can be for people who are in trauma. That is beautiful. Yeah. We don't need to ask. We don't need to make a big to-do about it. We just need to be and be ready to do without question, without, without anything. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here because in the Christian community, in the church, the first thing we do is, well, we'll pray. We'll pray about that. Right. And while we believe in prayer, oh my gosh, do not hear what I am not saying here. We believe in the power of prayer and yes, we pray, but that alone for someone in crisis is not enough in that moment. Yes. You are going to go home and get on your knees and you're going to pray for that person, that individual, but what you need right then and there, it goes beyond just a, well, I will pray for you. Right. There's more that we can do for, for people. So thank you so much for saying, like, don't ask me what I need. Just show up. Just be there and create a space where I can just be and or cry or I'll just sit here. I'll just sit here. You don't have to talk. Whatever you need. Right. And when you figure it out, I will be here for you. Right. Yeah. That's that. Thank you so much for saying that because I feel like a lot of people – because we're doers, especially in the Salvation Army, we are doers. And if you're like me, I'm I'm Enneagram number two. I've said that before, but I want to help. I want to fix it. I want to make it make you okay. But having been through my own trauma, that is that's gold wisdom right there. I just needed a space to be and and not be okay for that matter. Right, right. Please, you know, I want to come to the core and I want to worship, but. I am broken and I'm going to give you what I have, but please just understand where I'm coming from and just let me, just let me have that space. We need to give permission for that and and for, for whatever, it could be something huge, like what you've been through or, you know, something that someone's struggling with quietly and, and silently, you know, we need to give permission to just, to not be okay and however long that takes. And you know what? For some people, they might never be okay with their situation. (laughs) You know, like they may never get to a point earth side here on this planet where they are okay with their trauma or okay with their circumstance. It may, it may be heaven that they're waiting for. And that is okay. We need to give that permission more often. Yeah. Cause that's how Jesus will be shown. Yes. I just think of the so many times in scripture where Jesus was just 
quiet. Like he just went and sat or, you know, even just I think of like the woman, the woman writing in the sand and he just went over next to her and was just right there. Like, yes, that's what I that's what I want. And that's in the moments where I have nothing to say except for tears. Mm. I have no energy to even tell you, you know, what I did that week. But I all I have is tears Mm. and all I need is for you to just, hey, I'm here, you know, your love and here's a hug because I'm a hugger and I'm just going to be present. Mm. And, you know, sometimes the best thing you can do is just to stand there and give that affirmation of just a pat on the back or, you know, a squeeze of the hand. Um, because that's just what I picture Jesus doing. Yeah. Yeah. He sees. And that's what we Mm -hmm. need to do. We need to have those eyes to see. And again, I'm going to say it again. And I love the Salvation Army. I was born and raised in the Salvation Army. I love it. I love what we do. But we are doers. And and a lot of times we get so busy in the doing, especially on a Sunday morning. You know, you've got all your things. You've, you've got to play in the band. You've got to sing in the songs. Do the praise band. There's a lot of doing. And then we miss our brothers and sisters around us who need us, right. who need that squeeze. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Oh, spirit, that you would move mm-hmm. our hearts to see. Right. Give us eyes. And there's the, the situations where we know someone's going through something. And in our heads, we somehow reconcile, oh, they're laughing. Mm. Oh, they're smiling. Oh, they're mm. here. They must be doing okay. And I know that that was my experience. When I confronted um, an individual who I had disclosed to had not been there for me, the response I received was, oh, well, you seem like you were doing just fine. No. So I didn't think that you needed anything. No. And I'm like, it's been three months. I am still broken. And just because that I can receive the joy from the Holy Spirit and live that out does not mean that my wounds are completely healed or banished or that I am not in a place of struggle. Right. So we we cannot assume that just because someone is has a smile on their face or Or is showing up and serving and doing that they are not in a place of just complete difficulty. Yeah. And that's something that comes with that doing. We rush and we do and we put on a good face. We are great pretenders, mm. especially with um, things that require vulnerability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be in that place that requires us to be honest. You know, everyone, how are you doing? Great. Yeah. Right. When, right. Instead, we want to say like, I am barely surviving. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? It's like that old adage of what does fine stand for? Freaked out, insecure. I forget what N and E are, but you know, like basically fine does not always mean fine. And we can put on the face when we need to, but don't take things at face value. It's not always, not always the case. Right. And that's when we just have to pray for the Holy Spirit to give us that wisdom mm-hmm. um, and the discernment to say, like, help us see yeah. who is hurting and who I can be present for. Yeah. And he always shows you whether it's just you catch them, their eyes doing something weird or, you know, looking a little a little odd or just some odd behavior. The Holy Spirit reveals to us. He does. Sure. Uh, but sometimes we are too busy with our own thoughts and our own doing and our own agendas that we we don't take time to ask the spirit 
to guide us and we don't take time to watch. And you know what? For some people, that's a really scary place to be. Like they are not though they do, they're not in tune with like their bedside manner needs some, a little help. I mean, we all know those people. Okay. Yeah. Tongue in cheek here. Yeah. Um, but that's a scary thing to ask the spirit to reveal to you someone who needs you, who just needs you to reach out to them and let them know that, uh, I see you, I'm, you know, I'm here for you, whatever the case may be for some that is really hard, but you know what? The spirit will equip you to do that even in those yeah. hard spaces. Yes. Yeah. I have heard so many times people saying, oh, when they hear something happen to someone, they're like, oh, the other night I woke up in the middle of the night and they were on my mind and I didn't know why. And it's like, reach out. Right. When that happens, don't be afraid. For some reason, we get all awkward for, you know, for our own reasons. Mm. We think, oh, they won't want to hear from me or that's weird or, yeah. um, you know, they don't need to hear like I'm just going to move on but they're on your heart and on your mind for a reason. Reach out and pray, but reach out. I can't tell you how many times that the Holy Spirit has done that and you reach out and it opens a whole door, Mm. a whole car for you to be the vehicle to share love and wisdom um, and encouragement with somebody who they, no one else knows what they're going through, but because the spirit laid them on your heart, you're able to be Jesus to them in that moment. So we need to stop being so awkward yes. and worry about what people think of us and start being the body. Right. Yeah, I know. I do wake up in the middle of the night with people on my mind. And the obviously the first thing I do is I, I pray for that person, whatever they're, mm-hmm. they're going through. But I have grabbed my phone and sent a, either a Facebook private message or yeah. a, if I have their number, a text you know, and just say, Hey, I don't know why, but I'm praying for you. I know it's four in the morning. You don't have to answer me right now. (laughs) And usually they don't usually, you know, I get a thank you the next day, but yeah, just those, those moments, those opportunities that of nudging, just, just do it. (laughs) Don't wait, just do it. Yeah. Right. Because sometimes, you know, we're at the point where that's, I don't want to say life or death, but life or death of spirit. Honestly, Mm. we have so like, there's so much hurt and brokenness that we are just standing by waiting for it to be healed. Mm. And we have an opportunity to be part of that healing process. It's like a kid wanting to jump into like the deep end for the first time. They're super like, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be. This is, this is going to be like flying high when I finally jump in and I, I can swim in it. But for some reason, just that little piece of fear within the excitement and the desire keeps us and makes us, you know, do that, that kind of like lunge forward and stop. Mm. But when we jump in, there is no greater joy than jumping full in. And we're so happy that we did it. We question why we were so afraid in the first place. Right. And so we have the opportunity to jump in and heal and to bring joy and to bring peace and to bring comfort through the spirit, through the power of spirit. We've yes. been given the power of yeah. the spirit yeah. and we have that opportunity. I just, every day I wake up and my, my first prayer is asking God to make sure that I am not missing out on what he has for me. Mm. And that's, I beg him every day. I'm like, please don't let my own thoughts, my own agenda, my own routine, my own opinions, my own anything to keep me from what you have, Mm. because I want to see people grow. I want to 
be part of God's kingdom on earth. And I want to see other people know him and experience him as I have. Even in the worst moments of my life, I have experienced God at work. Mm. And so I just beg him every day. I don't want to, if I'm wrong, please tell me I'm wrong. I hate Mm. being wrong. (laughs) I love being right, but I have been wrong. And I have to be open for that because God has so much more for us than our own pride and our own routine. And there's so much more for us. Yeah. I'm an Enneagram five for the record. So I love being right. Yes. (laughs) I know that about you with a one wing or something like that. You've got a little one in you too. Yeah, I do. I think at work I'm a one. Mm. Yeah. I've taken the test differently. I've been like, this is my work mind and I'm a one. Yeah. Oh, now that's an interesting thought. I, yeah, that's worth exploring. What am I like at work compared to what I'm like at home or in my own space? Hmm. I'm totally, totally different because I'm like extroverted at work. But when I'm, when I'm at home, I am the most introverted introvert you'll ever see. Like the phone, do not disturb goes on. (laughs) You need your space. I've always said that. Even for the most extroverted people who claim to be extroverts, I know for a fact they still like to go home and have a moment just to recharge. Yeah, you need that. Okay, so going back to your story, that apartment, you had to live there for several months after. Yeah. What was that like coming home every day facing that? Yeah, Yeah. so that I was assaulted in January. Um, And I didn't get to move out until October. Oh, my word. So it was a very long time. And because of COVID, the apartment complex, all they had to do in order for me not to be released from my lease, all they had to do was show proof that they did something to rectify the situation. So they put security cameras in the hallways Mm. and they fulfilled, they checked that box. Um, So it was going to cost like $6,000 to be released from my lease. And I just got a master's degree. I'm single. I live on my own in Chicagoland. I don't have $6,000 extra to just throw at getting out of my lease. So I was stuck. I was stuck. And coming home every day, I would avoid it. Mm. So I started staying longer at work. I started scheduling more visitation. I started doing more outside of, you know, what I would usually do. And especially during COVID where we all were already experiencing creative burnout in ministry. Yeah. I had creative burnout and then I had physical burnout. I had spiritual burnout. I had mental burnout. Um, and so between January and I would say June, when I kind of hit my, my breaking point, I couldn't do it anymore. Mm. Um, like that's when I resigned from my full-time ministry position at Norwich. I just felt like I had nothing to give anymore. I had been fighting through and serving and being and doing all the things in my ministry up until that point. But the re-traumatization that happened every night and I couldn't sleep um, because I was afraid. And, you know, even though I knew I had done the things I needed to do to make sure I was safe, but you just can't, you walk into that space and you, it go, it just, it's like a movie. It just all flashes back through your mind. But I made friends with the policeman who was the first responder to my case. Mm. And so 
uh, the kindest man who I found out later is a believer. That's awesome. And one of his daughters goes to um, my alma mater from my undergrad. So we kind of bonded over that. But uh, he was present for me. Mm. Like he would either show up and check on me or he would call me at least once a week and mm. say, I know you're still in that place. What, how are you doing? And just him calling me yep. like this random policeman that, you know, he just was like, something's different about you. And because I have four daughters, I can't imagine if I had a daughter that was in your situation. Mm. And so he was one of the people that was just like, I thanked God for all the time just because of his, his kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I still communicate with him to this day. Yeah. And he was there on the, you know, the day before I moved out of that place. And he was like, this is it. You're free. Yes. You're free. Yes. And I'm standing there sobbing because it's just yeah. like, it's amazing in those moments when you're just questioning everything. And having to go back to that place every day for how many months, January through October, there were still moments of joy yes. that I w- was able to have. Mm. Um, you know, even just in crazy me inviting my friends over to my apartment that I was sexually assaulted <laughs> in. I'm like, everything's fine. We're all good. There's power in numbers. But, you know. Creating a different memory. You make new memories and new new joy so that, you know, that day when the apartment was all cleaned out and emptied and I just stood there and I was able to look and I was able to think of the happy things, the good moments, the moments of joy and smile. Of course, there was lots of weeping and, you know, of the sad things, but I was able to recall the good times as well. I just imagine you shutting that door to your apartment and walking away it's done. This part, this chapter of my life now is the beginning of the, of the end of it. Yeah. You're coming to the last yeah. pages. Yeah. Yeah. Cause my parents came to help me move out and, you know, they were aware of the, the basic story, you know, the basic things that had happened. You know, I've never really gone into detail with them hmm. about this just because my mom's a, a tough lady. So, you know, she, she would go insane <laughs> if I went into details, but uh, we don't have to uh, go into that. But right. uh, we just stood there after yeah, closing that door and we all just kind of stood in the hallway. And I just remember like I had my hand on the door and I just stood there for a little, like a minute. And in my mind, like I didn't know what was happening, but I guess what was coming out of my mouth was like, Lord, protect the next person who lives yes. here. Yes. Oh my goodness. And I, like, I don't remember that, but my brother brought it up to me the other day, actually, Hmm. just because he just was like, that's crazy. He said, I probably would have, you know, said a few choice words as I was walking away. And I was like, yeah, but that just shows how much healing God has done from that point, January to October. Who would have thought that I would be at that place? I didn't. Yeah. I didn't think I was going to be at that place of healing Mm -hmm. at that point. I didn't know that God was going to do that much in my heart, even to the point, you know, this policeman uh, invited me to speak to a woman's shelter about sexual assaults and rape and surviving trauma and healing from trauma. I, if you would have asked me even in, you know, June, Katie, like, is that something that you're willing to do? I would have been like, are you kidding me? are you kidding? Like, do you know what I've been through? Do you know where I am? Like, I, I can't even put two words together at this point, but God heals. Yes. And he gives comfort. Amen to that. 
So thankfully, your offender has been convicted and is in prison right now. Yes. Good. Mm -hmm. And you have moved on, physically moved out of the apartment and moved into a new place. What are some things, this is, I'm going to put you on the spot here. What are things that you would say to your offender if you had the opportunity, you know, in a safe place, if, if you ever saw him again? What would you want to say to him now? Uh, First, I would want to tell him that I forgive him. Mm. Um, That's something that the Lord really convicted me of in this whole healing process was the need to forgive. Mm. Forgive myself for leaving my door unlocked. Forgive him for um, doing that to me. Mm -hmm. Forgive the people who I disclosed to who weren't there for me. Forgive my apartment complex for not giving grace um, and making provision in a really horrific circumstance, I had to do a lot of forgiveness. So I think that would be the first thing that I would say to him. And then the second thing I think would be, where is your brokenness? Hmm. What is a way that people can come around and support you to heal from whatever you're doing to be in that place where you know, cause I, I, I do believe there's, there's a darkness, you know, there for someone to act in that way. And there has to be. Right. And I just like, I would figure out a way somehow to ask that, mm-hmm. um, and to have that conversation, like what, why? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I did choose to not know, uh, his name. I did choose to not know anything about him just because I am the type Enneagram five, I would look him up on the internet every day to make sure that he was still incarcerated. And, but I would like want to know about him. I do research. I'd be like, where's his Facebook page? Where's his, this, what does he post? You know, and I'd make my own opinions about this and that, but that's just a rabbit trail. We don't want to go down. Exactly. Exactly. I'm never going to know. And I'm never going to receive an apology from him. Right. Even when he looked me in the eyes at the trial, when he was being uh, convicted, there was no apology. Mm-hmm. There was just justice served. Mm-hmm. Praise God that there was justice served. But I never, like, that is not something I'm ever going to get. And so sometimes we think forgiveness is reliant on an apology. Mm. And we think we only have the right to forgive when we see everything, all those ducks in a row for us in order to forgive. Yep. The apology, the justice, on the change in Mm. behavior, action, word. But I didn't get any of that. Mm -hmm. I got the justice, but him as a person, I didn't get any of that. Mm. And so that is something I wrestled with. um, And I just kept asking God, like, why do I need to forgive him when I'm not going to get any of that? And God's like, do you think that I forgive like that? Oh, Lord. Like, Katie, you know how many times you have disobeyed me that you have chosen darkness over my light and I have forgiven you every time. Yeah. And so that was on me. Like I had to reach that place. And that is a process. Oh yeah. Like it's not, it is not just, I forgive you. Like we can say that all we want, but forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is reaching a place of reconciliation, even if just in yourself. Yeah because I'm never going to be able to have that reconciliation moment and conversation with my, my assaulter. It's not going to happen, but I can reconcile my heart, my trauma, my brokenness with him involved with God. Yes. Yeah. And like you said, 
Forgiveness, we do not have the attributes of God, okay? God can throw our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. We are human, and God did give us memories. While I do believe he can He can help cleanse our memories, you know, from, from some of those things and help us move on, we're still left with scars. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so in your ministry now... How can you use your experiences and not just this experience, but even your growing up experience and and graduating at 16 and becoming an adult and all of those things? How does your life experiences so far influence your ministry in Christian education? Tell us a little bit how you connect some of those dots. Yeah. So I believe that, you know, my experiences and what I've been through have given me wisdom to share. So right now, um, the nature of my position, I deal more with leaders and training leaders and equipping people who are directly ministering to youth on the field. So I went from direct youth ministry, which, you know, I was able to use my story and use my experiences to kind of shape how um, I ministered to youth experiencing their own trauma. Yeah. I mean, just the past two years of pandemic life has been trauma for each of us in our own way. So that has been a way that I can do that. And also, you know, ministering to you directly. I, I've been around the block. So I kind of, you know, things and I see things um, that maybe other people don't see. And so I'm able to say, hey, yeah, I'm not dumb. I know what you're doing. Uh, I was like you once in my in my old days. So, you know, I kind of was able to approach it from that way instead of just being like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. I'm able to come alongside and have the Mm -hmm. conversation Mm -hmm. instead of just authoritative. This is what we don't do. This is how we act. But just saying like, let's chat about this because that is what's impactful, right? Yeah. I know me as a young person, the minute I was told not to do something, I did it. Yeah. That's how I functioned. Um, And so that that mentality has kind of impacted the way that I do ministry. A relationship is so crucial and so important. And yes. so when not now, when I'm training leaders and equipping leaders, that's just always what I'm encouraging, that relational discipleship. Um, you cannot have an effective ministry if you are not having impactful and relational conversation and moments of connection with your youth. Yeah. And so the youth know if you're just doing the you know, the good old thing, the good old uh, O&R type of programming and things like that. They know you're just doing your job and that maybe you don't care about them the most. Yeah, they can see through all of that. Exactly. Kids are so intuitive and they know when you're just doing what you need to do to do it or if you're really caring, if you're really desiring to make that connection with them. Yeah. And they'll be the first ones to call you out on your garbage. Yep. Mm-hmm. They will be the first ones. And so, you know, I had my those moments of my ministry, you know, even in my place of when I was dealing with the hard stuff. And they're like, Katie, something's wrong with you. Like, you're not yourself. What's going on? And I'm just like, you know, like, just dealing with some stuff, guys. And they're like, that's crap. <laughs> Which that's what they would say to me. And I'm like, yeah. we don't, we're not going to say crap. So it's just some stuff. It's But, you know, they are the first ones to call you out. Yeah, Kids watch. And so you know, in, in equipping and uh, training leaders for youth ministry, like match the level. That's always yeah. just what I'm saying. Like you got to match the energy. You know, kids are all about the vibe these days. You know, you got to got to fit the vibe. 
And so just all of these things that I've experienced and seeing myself in youth really, um, I think that's why I'm so passionate about youth ministry is because in every youth that I've come in contact with and that I've, you know, had conversation with that I've ministered to, like, I see a part of myself and I think to myself, Mm -hmm. if only someone would have taken this time with you, you would have loved and adored for someone to do this for you. And imagine how different some of those really rocky years would have been if someone would have taken this time with you. All it takes is go into Raising Cane's you know, once in a while, take them to do that. I'm the queen of kids jumping at me and let's go to dinner. Let's go to do this. Let's just figuring out how you can make those impactful moments where they can sit back at 30 years old and say, Hmm, I'm going to do that because that was shown to me. Yeah. And that's how the body's going to grow. Yeah. Youth are dropping off because they don't see the genuine care. They don't see the authenticity. That's a huge problem. Yeah. They see us talking about doing good and loving others and doing all of this, but we're kind of not like going back to that diving thing. We're, we're not completely taking the dive and they think, well, that's not what I've been taught. So is that really where we're at? So we have an opportunity to change that narrative and win our kids to Christ. Like, I don't care what church you go to. Mm -hmm. And some people get mad at me when I say that, but I don't care if you wear a uniform. I don't care if you're a salvationist. I just want you to love the Lord Mm -hmm. with all of who you are and serve him. That's all that matters to me. And that's how, that's how we're going to do it is not, you know, in the, the little nitty gritty of things, but just showing them Christ and, and teaching them the word and, and developing a, a prayer life and doing all those things. That's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Like those, the kids, they, they see it, they know it, they know when it's not genuine. They know when you're just checking the box. Yes, they do. I am so grateful. So grateful. I got to give a shout out to my church, Oakbrook Terrace Salvation Army. They have a intentional youth ministry program as well, just like you guys do at Norwich. And my kids have been discipled and loved and, and they show up. I mean, people during the pandemic, they came to our house and just knocked on our door and said, Hey, how are you doing? You know, like what, just what you were saying, like we had no idea they were coming just showing up at your house just to check on your kids. And so, I mean, that spoke volumes to my, especially my son, who is an introvert, like times 1000. And, you know, he doesn't wear his heart on his sleeve. You don't really know what he needs until he tells you. And even then you got to pull it out of him. But that spoke volumes to him. Like, I am seen. People know me. They like me. This is going to be okay. We're going to be okay. You know? So, yeah. Uh, well, Katie, I thank you so much for being vulnerable and brave. I think I feel like we we sometimes we say people are, you know, thank you for being vulnerable, but there's brave that comes along with yeah. that. You know, there's courage that that gives you that space to be vulnerable. Um, so thank you so much for for sharing your story with us today. And um, I know that there are listeners out there who either have been through or know someone who has been through something similar and can relate to that. What's one last thing you want to say to anyone listening out there who um, may be struggling just as you did? Yeah. 
Trauma is a carousel style process of grief. Mm. There's no, there's no linear process. You know, they talk about like the seven stages of grief. It's not, it's not stages. It's a carousel. And sometimes you feel like you can't ever get off. But the beauty is, is that you can always get to enjoy a carousel ride. And so just stay on it and keep focused and rely on the spirit um, and seek those opportunities for eating that piece of joy and, and receiving peace and comfort and immerse yourself in the body um, and minister to others because that's when the carousel ride begins to become enjoyable and that grief starts to lessen and the joy starts to increase. Yeah. Awesome. Katie, you are an inspiration to us all. Thank you so much for sharing today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm so thankful for Katie and her willingness to share something that was really difficult for her to talk about. But what I love so much is you could hear in her voice forgiveness. And it wasn't just something she said. She is putting it into practice. She is making it a part of her life, examining every aspect of it all. And that's what God does with our hearts. He looks deep into the hard parts, into the parts that we want to keep hidden. He sees it, he knows it all, and he just wants to take it and refine it and heal it and reconcile it and bring it back into what it was created to be. This is hard stuff and like what Katie said, it's a process. And sometimes just taking that next step or even that next breath is all we can handle. But I just wanna encourage you, God is there, he hasn't left. He loves you and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. I hope you know that today. And friends, in the body of Christ, let's not forget what we learned about asking God to reveal to us those who need us, those who are hurting. You won't have to look very far. And just as Katie was so brave in sharing her testimony with us, ask God to show you how you can be his hands and feet and eyes today. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. But as always, I hope that this podcast has left you feeling prepared and equipped for tomorrow. I'll see you next time. God bless you.